What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 13 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 13. Lovemaking on Mars Following the battle with the airships, the community remained within the city for several days, abandoning the homeward march until they could feel reasonably assured that the ships would not return, for to be caught on the open plains with a cavalcade of chariots and children was far from the desire of even so warlike a people as the Green Martians. During our period of inactivity, Tars Tarkas had instructed me in many of the customs and arts of war familiar to the Tharks, including lessons in riding and guiding the great beasts which bore the warriors. These creatures, which are known as thoats, are as dangerous and vicious as their masters, but when once subdued are sufficiently tractable for the purposes of the Green Marshals. Two of these animals had fallen to me from the warriors whose metal I wore, and in a short time I could handle them quite as well as the native warriors. The method was not at all complicated. If the thoats did not respond with sufficient celerity to the telepathic instructions of their riders, they were dealt a terrific blow between the ears with the butt of a pistol, and if they showed fight, this treatment was continued until the brutes either were subdued or had unseated their riders. In the latter case, it became a life-and-death struggle between the man and the beast. If the former were quick enough with his pistol, he might live to ride again, though upon some other beast. If not, his torn and mangled body was gathered up by his women and burned in accordance with Tharkian custom. My experience with Wula determined me to attempt the experiment of kindness in my treatment of my thoats. First, I taught them that they could not unseat me, and even wrap them sharply between the ears to impress upon them my authority and mastery. Then, by degrees, I won their confidence in much the same manner as I had adopted countless times with my many mundane mounts. I was ever a good hand with animals, and by inclination, as well as because it brought more lasting and satisfactory results, I was always kind and humane in my dealings with the lower orders. I could take a human life, if necessary, with far less compunction than that of a poor, unreasoning, irresponsible brute. In the course of a few days, my thoughts were the wonder of the entire community. They would follow me like dogs, rubbing their great snouts against my body in awkward evidence of affection, and respond to my every command with an alacrity and docility which caused the Martian warriors to ascribe to me the possession of some earthly power unknown on Mars. "'How have you bewitched them?' asked Tars Tarkas one afternoon, 
when he had seen me run my arm far between the great jaws of one of my thoats, which had wedged a piece of stone between two of his teeth while feeding upon the moss-like vegetation within our courtyard. By kindness, I replied. You see, Tars Tarkas, the softer sentiments have their value even to a warrior. In the height of battle as well as upon the march, I know that my thoats will obey my every command, and therefore my fighting efficiency is enhanced, and I am a better warrior for the reason that I am a kind master. Your other warriors would find it to the advantage of themselves, as well as of the community, to adopt my methods in this respect. Only a few days since you yourself told me that these great brutes, by the uncertainty of their tempers, often were the means of turning victory into defeat, since at a crucial moment they might elect to unseat and rend their riders. Show me how you accomplish these results, was Tars Tarkas, only rejoinder. And so I explained as carefully as I could the entire method of training I had adopted with my beasts, and later he had me repeat it before Lorquas Tomel and the assembled warriors. That moment marked the beginning of a new existence for the poor Thotes, and before I left the community of Lorquas Tomel, I had the satisfaction of observing a regiment of as tractable and docile mounts as one might care to see. The effect on the precision and celerity of the military movements was so remarkable that Lorquas Tomel presented me with a massive anklet of gold from his own leg as a sign of his appreciation of my service to the horde. On the seventh day following the battle with the aircraft, we again took up the march toward Thark, all probability of another attack being deemed remote by Lorquas Tomel. During the days just preceding our departure, I had seen but little of Dejathoris, as I had been kept very busy by Tars Tarkas with my lessons in the art of Martian warfare, as well as in the training of my thoats. The few times I had visited her quarters, she had been absent, walking upon the streets with Sola, or investigating the buildings in the near vicinity of the plaza. I had warned them against venturing far from the plaza for fear of the great white apes, whose ferocity I was only too well acquainted with. However, since Wula accompanied them on all their excursions, and as Sola was well armed, there was comparatively little cause for fear. On the evening before our departure, I saw them approaching along one of the great avenues which lead into the plaza from the east. I advanced to meet them, and telling Sola that I would take the responsibility for Dejah Thor's safekeeping, I directed her to return to her quarters on some trivial errand. I liked and trusted Sola, but for some reason I desired to be alone with Dejah Thoris, who represented to me all that I had left behind upon earth in agreeable and congenial companionship. There seemed bonds of mutual interest between us, as powerful as though we had been born under the same roof rather than upon different planets, hurtling through space some forty-eight million miles apart. That she shared my sentiments in this respect I was positive, for on my approach the look of pitiful hopelessness left her sweet countenance to be replaced by a smile of joyful welcome, as she placed her little right hand upon my left shoulder in true Red Martian salute. Sarkoja told Sola that you had become a true Thark, she said, 
and that I would now see no more of you than any of the other warriors. Sarkoja is a liar of the first magnitude, I replied, notwithstanding the proud claim of the Tharks to absolute verity. Dejathoris laughed. I knew that even though you became a member of the community, you would not cease to be my friend. A warrior may change his metal, but not his heart, as the saying is upon Barsoom. I think they have been trying to keep us apart, she continued, for whenever you have been off duty, one of the older women of Tars Tarkas retinue has always arranged to trump up some excuse to get Sola and me out of sight. They have had me down in the pits below the buildings, helping them mix their awful radium powder and make their terrible projectiles. You know that these have to be manufactured by artificial light, as exposure to sunlight always results in an explosion. You have noticed that their bullets explode when they strike an object? Well, the opaque outer coating is broken by the impact, exposing a glass cylinder almost solid, in the forward end of which is a minute particle of radium powder. The moment the sunlight, even though diffused, strikes this powder, it explodes with a violence which nothing can withstand. If you ever witness a night battle, you will note the absence of these explosions, while the morning following the battle will be filled at sunrise with the sharp detonations of exploding missiles fired the preceding night. As a rule, however, non-exploding projectiles are used at night. Note. I have used the word radium in describing this powder because, in the light of recent discoveries on Earth, I believe it to be a mixture of which radium is the base. In Captain Carter's manuscript it is mentioned always by the name used in the written language of helium, and is spelled in hieroglyphics, which it would be difficult and useless to reproduce. Return to text. While I was much interested in Dejothor's explanation of this wonderful adjunct to Martian warfare, I was more concerned by the immediate problem of their treatment of her. That they were keeping her away from me was not a matter for surprise, but that they should subject her to dangerous and arduous labor filled me with rage. Have they ever subjected you to cruelty and ignominy, Dejathoris? I asked, feeling the hot blood of my fighting ancestors leap in my veins as I awaited her reply. Only in little ways, John Carter, she answered. Nothing that can harm me outside my pride. They know that I am the daughter of ten thousand Jeddaks, that I trace my ancestry straight back without a break to the builder of the first great waterway, and they who do not even know their own mothers are jealous of me. At heart they hate their horrid fates, and so wreak their poor spite on me, who stand for everything they have not, and for all they most crave and never can attain. Let us pity them, my chieftain, for even though we die at their hands, we can afford them pity, since we are greater than they, and they know it. Had I known the significance of those words, my chieftain, as applied by a red Martian woman to a man, I should have had the surprise of my life. But I did not know at that time, nor for many months thereafter. Yes, I still had much to learn upon Barsoom. I presume it is the better part of wisdom, 
that we bow to our fate with as good grace as possible, Dejah Thoris, but I hope nevertheless that I may be present the next time that any Martian, green, red, pink, or violet, has the temerity to even so much as frown on you, my princess. Dejah Thoris caught her breath at my last words, and gazed upon me with dilated eyes and quickening breath, and then, with an odd little laugh which brought roguish dimples to the corners of her mouth, she shook her head and cried, What a child! A great warrior, and yet a stumbling little child! What have I done now? I asked in sore perplexity. Some day you shall know, John Carter, if we live, but I may not tell you. And I, the daughter of Moors Kajak, son of Tardos Moors, have listened without anger, she soliloquized in conclusion. Then she broke out again in one of her gay, happy, laughing moods, joking with me on my prowess as a Thark warrior, as contrasted with my soft heart and natural kindliness. I presume that should you accidentally wound an enemy, you would take him home and nurse him back to health, she laughed. That is precisely what we do on earth, I answered, at least among civilized men. This made her laugh again. She could not understand it for with all her tenderness and womanly sweetness she was still a martian and to a martian the only good enemy is a dead enemy for every dead foeman means so much more to divide between those who live i was very curious to know what i had said or done to cause her so much perturbation a moment before and so i continued to importune her to enlighten me no she exclaimed it is enough that you have said it and that i have listened and when you learn john carter and if i be dead as likely i shall be ere the further moon has circled barsoom another twelve times remember that i listened and that i smiled it was all greek to me but the more i begged her to explain the more positive became her denials of my request and so in very hopelessness i desisted day had now given way to night and as we wandered along the great avenue lighted by the two moons of barsoom and with earth looking down upon us out of her luminous green eye it seemed that we were alone in the universe and i at least was content that it should be so the chill of the martian night was upon us and removing my silks, I threw them across the shoulders of Dejah Thoris. As my arm rested for an instant upon her, I felt a thrill pass through every fibre of my being, such as contact with no other mortal had ever produced, and it seemed to me that she had leaned slightly toward me, but of that I was not sure. Only I knew that as my arm rested there across her shoulders, longer than the act of adjusting the silk required she did not draw away nor did she speak and so in silence we walked the surface of a dying world and in the breast of one of us at least had been born that which is ever oldest yet ever new i loved dejah thoris the touch of my arm upon her naked shoulder had spoken to me in words i could not mistake and I knew that I had loved her since the first moment that my eyes had met hers, that first time in the plaza of the dead city of Korad.
End of chapter 13「I could not chance causing her additional pain or sorrow by declaring a love which, in all probability, she did not return. Should I be so indiscreet, her position would be even more unbearable than now, and the thought that she might feel that I was taking advantage of her helplessness to influence her decision was the final argument which sealed my lips. "'Why are you so quiet, De Jothoris?' I asked. "'Possibly you would rather return to Sola and your quarters?' No, she murmured, I am happy here. I do not know why it is that I should always be happy and contented when you, John Carter, a stranger, are with me. Yet at such times it seems that I am safe, and that with you I shall soon return to my father's court and feel his strong arms about me, and my mother's tears and kisses on my cheek. Do people kiss then on Barsoom? I asked, when she had explained the word she used in answer to my inquiry as to its meaning. Parents, brothers and sisters, yes, and, she added in a low, thoughtful tone, lovers. And you, Dejathoris, have parents and brothers and sisters? Yes. And, uh, lover? She was silent, nor could I venture to repeat the question. The man of Barsoom, she finally ventured, does not ask personal questions of women, except his mother, and the woman he has fought for and won. But I have fought, I started, and then I wished my tongue had been cut from my mouth, for she turned, even as I caught myself and ceased, and drawing my silks from her shoulder, she held them out to me, and without a word, and with head held high, she moved with the carriage of the queen she was, toward the plaza, and the doorway of her quarters. I did not attempt to follow her, other than to see that she reached the building in safety, but directing Wula to accompany her, I turned disconsolately and entered my own house. I sat for hours cross-legged and cross-tempered upon my silks, meditating upon the queer freaks chance plays upon us poor devils of mortals. So, this was love. I had escaped it for all the years I had roamed the five continents and their encircling seas, in spite of beautiful women and urging opportunity, in spite of a half-desire for love and a constant search for my ideal. It had remained for me to fall furiously and hopelessly in love with a creature from another world, of a species similar, possibly, yet not identical with mine, a woman who was hatched from an egg and whose span of life might cover a thousand years, whose people had strange customs and ideas, a woman whose hopes, whose pleasures, whose standards of virtue and of right and wrong might vary as greatly from mine as did those of the green Martians. Yes, I was a fool, but I was in love, and though I was suffering the greatest misery I had ever known, I would not have had it otherwise for all the riches of Barsoom. Such is love 
and such are lovers wherever love is known. To me, Dejathoris was all that was perfect, all that was virtuous and beautiful and noble and good. I believed that from the bottom of my heart, from the depth of my soul on that night in Korad, as I sat cross-legged upon my silks, while the nearer moon of Barsoom raced through the western sky toward the horizon, and lighted up the gold and marble and jeweled mosaics of my world-old chamber. And I believe it today, as I sit at my desk, in the little study overlooking the Hudson. Twenty years have intervened. For ten of them I lived and fought for Dejathoris and her people, and for ten I have lived upon her memory. The morning of our departure for Thark dawned clear and hot, as do all Martian mornings except for the six weeks when the snow melts at the poles. I sought out Dejathoris in the throng of departing chariots, but she turned her shoulder to me, and I could see the red blood mount to her cheek. With the foolish inconsistency of love, I held my peace when I might have pled ignorance of the nature of my offense, or at least the gravity of it and so have effected at worst a half-conciliation. My duty dictated that I must see that she was comfortable, and so I glanced into her chariot and rearranged her silks and furs. In doing so, I noted with horror that she was heavily chained by one ankle to the side of the vehicle. "'What does this mean?' I cried, turning to Sola. "'Sarkoja thought it best,' she answered her face betokening her disapproval of the procedure. Examining the manacles, I saw that they fastened with a massive spring-lock. Where is the key, Sola? Let me have it. Sarkoja wears it, John Carter, she answered. I turned without further word and sought out Tars Tarkas, to whom I vehemently objected to the unnecessary humiliations and cruelties, as they seemed to my lover's eyes, that were being heaped upon Dejathoris. John Carter, he answered, if ever you and Dejathoris escape the Tharks, it will be upon this journey. We know that you will not go without her. You have shown yourself a mighty fighter, and we do not wish to manacle you. So we hold you both in the easiest way that will yet ensure security. I have spoken. I saw the strength of his reasoning at a flash and knew that it were futile to appeal from his decision. But I asked that the key be taken from Sarkoja, and that she be directed to leave the prisoner alone in future. This much, Tars Tarkas, you may do for me, in return for the friendship that I must confess I feel for you. Friendship? he replied. There is no such thing, John Carter. But have your will. I shall direct that Sarkoja cease to annoy the girl, and I myself will take custody of the key. Unless you wish me to assume the responsibility, I said, smiling. He looked at me long and earnestly before he spoke. Were you to give me your word that neither you nor J. J. Thoris would attempt to escape until after we have safely reached the court of Talhages, you might have the key and throw the chains into the river Ish. It were better that you held the key, Tars Tarkas, I replied. He smiled and said no more. But that night, as we were making camp, I saw him unfasten Dejathoris fetters himself. With all his cruel ferocity and coldness, 
There was an undercurrent of something in Tars Tarkas, which he seemed ever battling to subdue. Could it be a vestige of some human instinct come back from an ancient forebear to haunt him, the horror of his people's ways? As I was approaching Dejothoros' chariot, I passed Sarkoja, and the black venomous look she accorded me was the sweetest balm I had felt for many hours. Lord, how she hated me! It bristled from her so palpably that one might almost have cut it with a sword. A few moments later I saw her deep in conversation with a warrior named Zad, a big, hulking, powerful brute, but one who had never made a kill among its own chieftains, and so was still an Omad, or man with one name. He could win a second name only with the metal of some chieftain. It was this custom which entitled me to the names of either of the chieftains I had killed. In fact, some of the warriors addressed me as Dotar Sojat, a combination of the surnames of the two warrior chieftains whose metal I had taken, or in other words, whom I had slain in fair fight. As Sarkoja talked with Zad, he cast occasional glances in my direction, while she seemed to be urging him very strongly to some action. I paid little attention to it at the time, but the next day I had good reason to recall the circumstances, and at the same time gain a slight insight into the depths of Sarkoja's hatred, and the lengths to which she was capable of going to wreak her horrid vengeance on me. Dejathoris would have none of me again on this evening, and though I spoke her name she neither replied nor conceded by so much as the flutter of an eyelid that she realized my existence. In my extremity I did what most other lovers would have done. I sought word from her through an intimate. In this instance it was Sola whom I intercepted in another part of the camp. What is the matter with Dejathoris? I blurted out at her. Why will she not speak to me? Sola seemed puzzled herself, as though such strange actions on the part of two humans were quite beyond her, as indeed they were, poor child. She says you have angered her and that is all she will say, except that she is the daughter of a Jed and the granddaughter of a Jeddak, and she has been humiliated by a creature who could not polish the teeth of her grandmother's Sorak. I pondered over this report for some time, finally asking, What might a Sorak be, Sola? A little animal about as big as my hand, which the Red Martian women keep to play with, explained Sola not fit to polish the teeth of her grandmother's cat. I must rank pretty low in the consideration of Dejathoris, I thought. But I could not help laughing at the strange figure of speech, so homely, and in this respect so earthly. It made me homesick, for it sounded very much like not fit to polish her shoes, and then commenced a train of thought quite new to me. I began to wonder what my people at home were doing. I had not seen them for years. There was a family of Carters in Virginia who claimed close relationship with me. I was supposed to be a great-uncle, or something of the kind equally foolish. I could pass anywhere for twenty-five to thirty years of age, and to be a great-uncle always seemed the height of incongruity, for my thoughts and feelings were those of a boy. There were two little kiddies in the Carter family whom I had loved 
and who had thought there was no one on earth like Uncle Jack. I could see them just as plainly as I stood there under the moonlit skies of Barsoom, and I longed for them as I had never longed for any mortals before. By nature a wanderer, I had never known the true meaning of the word home, but the great hall of the Carters had always stood for all that the word did mean to me, and now my heart turned toward it from the cold and unfriendly peoples I had been thrown amongst. For did not even Dejah Thoris despise me? I was a low creature, so low, in fact, that I was not even fit to polish the teeth of her grandmother's cat. And then my saving sense of humor came to my rescue, and, laughing, I turned into my silks and furs and slept upon the moon-haunted ground, the sleep of a tired and healthy fighting man. We broke camp the next day at an early hour, and marched with only a single halt until just before dark. Two incidents broke the tediousness of the march. About noon we espied far to our right what was evidently an incubator, and Lorquas Ptomel directed Tars Tarkas to investigate it. The latter took a dozen warriors, including myself, and we raced across the velvety carpeting of moss to the little enclosure. It was indeed an incubator, but the eggs were very small in comparison with those I had seen hatching in hours at the time of my arrival on Mars. Tars Tarkas dismounted and examined the enclosure minutely, finally announcing that it belonged to the green men of Warhoon, and that the cement was scarcely dry where it had been walled up. They cannot be a day's march ahead of us, he exclaimed, the light of battle leaping to his fierce face. The work at the incubator was short indeed. The warriors tore open the entrance, and a couple of them crawling in soon demolished all the eggs with their short swords. Then, remounting, we dashed back to join the cavalcade. During the ride I took occasion to ask Tars Tarkas if these warhoons, whose eggs we had destroyed, were a smaller people than his tharks. I noticed that their eggs were so much smaller than those I saw hatching in your incubator, I added. He explained that the eggs had just been placed there, but like all green Martian eggs, they would grow during the five-year period of incubation until they obtained the size of those I had seen hatching on the day of my arrival on Barsoom. This was indeed an interesting piece of information for it had always seemed remarkable to me that the green Martian women, large as they were, could bring forth such enormous eggs as I had seen the four-foot infants emerging from. As a matter of fact, the new-laid egg is but little larger than an ordinary goose egg, and as it does not commence to grow until subjected to the light of the sun, the chieftains have little difficulty in transporting several hundreds of them at one time from the storage vaults to the incubators. Shortly after the incident of the Warhoon eggs, we halted to rest the animals, and it was during this halt that the second of the day's interesting episodes occurred. I was engaged in changing my riding cloths from one of my thoats to the other, for I divided the day's work between them, when Zod approached me and without a word struck my animal a terrific blow with his longsword. I did not need a manual of green Martian etiquette to know what reply to make, for, in fact, I was so wild with anger that I could scarcely refrain from drawing my pistol and shooting him down for the brute he was, but he stood waiting with drawn longsword. 
and my only choice was to draw my own and meet him in fair fight with his choice of weapons or a lesser one this latter alternative is always permissible therefore i could have used my short sword my dagger my hatchet or my fists had i wished and been entirely within my rights but i could not use firearms or a spear while he held only his longsword i chose the same weapon he had drawn because i knew he prided himself upon his ability with it and i wished if i worsted him at all to do it with his own weapon the fight that followed was a long one and delayed the resumption of the march for an hour the entire community surrounded us leaving a clear space about one hundred feet in diameter for our battle zod first attempted to rush me down as a bull might a wolf but i was much too quick for him and each time i sidestepped his rushes he would go lunging past me only to receive a nick from my sword upon his arm or back he was soon streaming blood from a half dozen minor wounds but i could not obtain an opening to deliver an effective thrust then he changed his tactics and fighting warily and with extreme dexterity he tried to do by science what he was unable to do by brute strength i must admit that he was a magnificent swordsman and had it not been for my greater endurance and the remarkable agility the lesser gravitation of mars lent me i might not have been able to put up the creditable fight i did against him we circled for some time without doing much damage on either side the long straight needle-like swords flashing in the sunlight and ringing out upon the stillness as they crashed together with each effective parry finally zod realizing that he was tiring more than i evidently decided to close in and end the battle in a final blaze of glory for himself just as he rushed me a blinding flash of light struck full in my eyes so that i could not see his approach and could only leap blindly to one side in an effort to escape the mighty blade that it seemed i could already feel in my vitals i was only partially successful as a sharp pain in my left shoulder attested but in the sweep of my glance as i sought to again locate my adversary a sight met my astonished gaze which paid me well for the wound the temporary blindness had caused me there upon dejah thor's chariot stood three figures for the purpose evidently of witnessing the encounter above the heads of the intervening tharks there were dejah thoris sola and sarkoja and as my fleeting glance swept over them a little tableau was presented which will stand graven in my memory to the day of my death as i looked dejah thoris turned upon sarkoja with the fury of a young tigress and struck something from her upraised hand something which flashed in the sunlight as it spun to the ground then i knew what had blinded me at that crucial moment of the fight and how sarkoja had found a way to kill me without herself delivering the final thrust another thing i saw too which almost lost my life for me then and there for it took my mind for the fraction of an instant entirely from my antagonist for as dejah thor struck the tiny mirror from her hand sarkoja her face livid with hatred and baffled rage whipped out her dagger and aimed a terrific blow at dejah thoris and then sola our dear and faithful sola sprang between them the last i saw was the great knife descending upon her shielding breast 
my enemy had recovered from his thrust and was making it extremely interesting for me so i reluctantly gave my attention to the work in hand my mind was not upon the battle we rushed each other furiously time after time till suddenly feeling the sharp point of his sword at my breast in a thrust i could neither parry nor escape i threw myself upon him with outstretched sword and with all the weight of my body determined that i would not die alone if i could prevent it i felt the steel tear into my chest all went black before me my head whirled in dizziness and i felt my knees giving beneath me end of chapter 14Chapter Fifteen of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Fifteen. Sola tells me her story. When consciousness returned, and as I soon learned, I was down but a moment, I sprang quickly to my feet, searching for my sword, and there I found it buried to the hilt in the green breast of Zad, who lay stone dead upon the ochre moss of the ancient sea bottom. As I regained my full senses, I found his weapon piercing my left breast, but only through the flesh and muscles which cover my ribs, entering near the center of my chest and coming out below the shoulder. As I had lunged, I had turned so that his sword merely passed beneath the muscles, inflicting a painful but not dangerous wound. Removing the blade from my body, I also regained my own, and turning my back upon his ugly carcass, I moved, sick, sore, and disgusted, toward the chariots which bore my retinue and my belongings. A murmur of Martian applause greeted me, but I cared not for it. Bleeding and weak, I reached my women, who, accustomed to such happenings, dressed my wounds, applying the wonderful healing and remedial agents which make only the most instantaneous of death-blows fatal. Give a Martian woman a chance, and death must take a back seat. They soon had me patched up so that except for weakness from loss of blood and a little soreness around the wound, I suffered no great distress from this thrust, which under earthly treatment undoubtedly would have put me flat on my back for days. As soon as they were through with me, I hastened to the chariot of Dejathoris, where I found my poor Sola with her chest swathed in bandages, but apparently little the worse for her encounter with Sarkoja, whose dagger, it seemed, had struck the edge of one of Sola's metal breast ornaments, and thus deflected, had inflicted but a slight flesh wound. As I approached, I found Dejathoris lying prone upon her silks and furs, her lithe form wrapped with sobs. She did not notice my presence, nor did she hear me speaking with Sola, who was standing a short distance from the vehicle. Is she injured? I asked of Sola, indicating Dejathoris by an inclination of my head. No, she answered. She thinks that you are dead and that her grandmother's cat may now have no one to polish its teeth i queried smiling i think you wrong her john carter said sola i do not understand either her ways or yours but i am sure the granddaughter of ten thousand jeddaks would never grieve like this over any who held but the highest claim upon her affections they are a proud race but they are just as are all barsoomians and you must have hurt or wronged her grievously that she will not admit your existence living though she mourns you dead. Tears are a strange sight upon Barzoom, she continued, and so it is difficult for me to interpret them. I have seen but two people weep in all my life, 
other than Dejathoris, one wept from sorrow, the other from baffled rage. The first was my mother, years ago, before they killed her. The other was Sarkoja, when they dragged her from me today. Your, your mother? I exclaimed. Basola, you could not have known your mother, child. But I did, and my father also, she added. If you would like to hear the strange and unbarsumian story, come to the chariot tonight, John Carter, and I will tell you that of which I have never spoken in all my life before. And now the signal has been given to resume the march. You must go. I will come tonight, Sola, I promised. Be sure to tell Dejathoris I am alive and well. I shall not force myself upon her, and be sure that you do not let her know I saw her tears. If she would speak with me, I but await her command. Sola mounted the chariot, which was swinging into its place in line, and I hastened to my waiting throat and galloped to my station beside Tars Tarkas at the rear of the column. We made a most imposing and awe-inspiring spectacle as we strung out across the yellow landscape, the two hundred and fifty ornate and brightly colored chariots, preceded by an advance guard of some two hundred mounted warriors and chieftains, riding five abreast and one hundred yards apart, and followed by a like number in the same formation, with a score or more of flankers on either side, the fifty extra mastodons, or heavy draught animals, known as zitidars, and the five or six hundred extra thoats of the warriors running loose within the hollow square formed by the surrounding warriors. The gleaming metal and jewels of the gorgeous ornaments of the men and women, duplicated in the trappings of the zitidars and thoats, and interspersed with the flashing colors of magnificent silks and furs and feathers, lent a barbaric splendor to the caravan, which would have turned an East Indian potentate green with envy. The enormous broad tires of the chariots and the padded feet of the animals brought forth no sound from the moss-covered sea-bottom, and so we moved in utter silence like some huge phantasmagoria, except when the stillness was broken by the guttural growling of a goaded zitidar or the squealing of fighting thoats. The green Martians conversed but little, and then usually in monosyllables, low, and like the faint rumbling of distant thunder. We traversed a trackless waste of moss, which, bending to the pressure of broad tie or padded foot, rose up again behind us, leaving no sign that we had passed. We might indeed have been the wraiths of the departed dead upon the dead sea of that dying planet, for all the sound or sign we made in passing. It was the first march of a large body of men and animals I had ever witnessed which raised no dust and left no spoor for there is no dust upon Mars except in the cultivated districts during the winter months, and even then the absence of high winds renders it almost unnoticeable. We camped that night at the foot of the hills we had been approaching for two days, and which marked the southern boundary of this particular sea. Our animals had been two days without drink, nor had they had water for nearly two months, not since shortly after leaving Thark. But, as Tars Tarkas explained to me, they require but little— and can live almost indefinitely upon the moss which covers Barsoom, and which, he told me, holds in its tiny stem sufficient moisture to meet the limited demands of the animals. After partaking of my evening meal of cheese-like food and vegetable milk, I sought out Sola, whom I found working by the light of a torch upon some of Tars Tarkas' trappings. She looked up at my approach, her face lighting with pleasure and with welcome. "'I am glad you came,' she said. Dejathora sleeps, and I am lonely. Mine own people do not care for me, John Carter. I am too unlike them. It is a sad fate, 
since I must live my life amongst them, and I often wish that I were a true green Martian woman without love and without hope. But I have known love, and so I am lost. I promise to tell you my story, or rather the story of my parents. From what I have learned of you and the ways of your people, I am sure that the tale will not seem strange to you, but among green Martians it has no parallel within the memory of the oldest living Thark, nor do our legends hold many similar tales. My mother was rather small, in fact too small to be allowed the responsibilities of maternity as our chieftains breed principally for size. She was also less cold and cruel than most green Martian women, and caring little for their society she often roamed the deserted avenues of Thark alone, or went out and sat among the wild flowers that decked the nearby hills, thinking thoughts and wishing wishes which I believe I alone among Tharkian women today may understand. For am I not the child of my mother? And there among the hills she met a young warrior, whose duty it was to guard the feeding citadars and thoats, and see that they roamed not beyond the hills. They spoke, at first, only of such things as interest a community of Tharks, but gradually, as they came to meet more often, and, as was now quite evident to both, no longer by chance, they talked about themselves, their likes, their ambitions, and their hopes. She trusted him, and told him of the awful repugnance she felt for the cruelties of their kind, for the hideous, loveless lives they must ever lead, and then she waited for the storm of denunciation to break from his cold, hard lips. But instead, he took her in his arms and kissed her. They kept their love a secret for six long years. She, my mother, was of the retinue of the great Talhagius, while her lover was a simple warrior, wearing only his own metal. Had her defection from the traditions of the Tharks been discovered, both would have paid the penalty in the great arena before Talhagius and the assembled hordes. The egg from which I came was hidden beneath a great glass vessel upon the highest and most inaccessible of the partially ruined towers of ancient Thark. Once each year my mother visited it for the five long years it lay there in the process of incubation. She dared not come oftener, for in the mighty guilt of her conscience she feared that her every move was watched. During this period my father gained great distinction as a warrior, and had taken the metal from several chieftains. His love for my mother had never diminished, and his own ambition in life was to reach a point where he might wrest the metal from Talhagis himself, and thus, as ruler of the Tharks, be free to claim her as his own, as well as, by the might of his power, protect the child which otherwise would be quickly dispatched, should the truth become known. It was a wild dream, that of wresting the metal from Talhagis in five short years, but his advance was rapid, and he soon stood high in the councils of Thark. But one day the chance was lost forever, insofar as it could come in time to save his loved ones, for he was ordered away upon a long expedition to the ice-clad south, to make war upon the natives there and to spoil them of their furs, for such is the manner of the green Barsoomian. He does not labor for what he can wrest in battle from others. He was gone for four years, and when he returned, all had been over for three. For about a year after his departure, and shortly before the time for the return of an expedition which had gone forth to fetch the fruits of a community incubator, the egg had hatched. Thereafter my mother continued to keep me in the old tower, visiting me nightly, 
and lavishing upon me the love the community life would have robbed us both of. She hoped, upon the return of the expedition from the incubator, to mix me with the other young assigned to the quarters of Talhages, and thus escape the fate which would surely follow discovery of her sin against the ancient traditions of the green man. She taught me rapidly the language and customs of my kind, and one night she told me the story I have told you up to this point, impressing upon me the necessity for absolute secrecy, and the great caution I must exercise, after she had placed me with the other young Tharks, to permit no one to guess that I was further advanced in education than they, nor by any sign to divulge in the presence of others my affection for her, or my knowledge of my parentage. And then, drawing me close to her, she whispered in my ear the name of my father. And then a light flashed out upon the darkness of the tower chamber, and there stood Sarkoja, her gleaming baleful eyes fixed in a frenzy of loathing and contempt upon my mother. The torrent of hatred and abuse she poured out upon her turned my young heart cold in terror. That she had heard the entire story was apparent, and that she had suspected something wrong from my mother's long nightly absences from her quarters accounted for her presence there on that fateful night. One thing she had not heard, nor did she know, the whispered name of my father. This was apparent from her repeated demands upon my mother to disclose the name of her partner in sin, but no amount of abuse or threats could wring this from her, and to save me from needless torture she lied, for she told Sarkoja that she alone knew, nor would she even tell her child. With final imprecations, Sarkoja hastened away to Talhages to report her discovery, and while she was gone my mother, wrapping me in the silks and furs of her night coverings, so that I was scarcely noticeable, descended to the streets and ran wildly away toward the outskirts of the city in the direction which led to the far south, out toward the man whose protection she might not claim, but on whose face she wished to look once more before she died. As we neared the city's southern extremity, a sound came to us from across the mossy flat, from the direction of the only pass through the hills which led to the gates, the pass by which caravans, from either north or south or east or west, would enter the city. The sounds we heard were the squealing of thoats and the grumbling of zitadars, with the occasional clank of arms which announced the approach of a body of warriors. The thought uppermost in her mind was that it was my father returned from his expedition, but the cunning of the Thark held her from headlong and precipitate flight to greet him. Retreating into the shadows of the doorway, she awaited the coming of the cavalcade, which shortly entered the avenue, breaking its formation, and thronging the thoroughfare from wall to wall. As the head of the procession passed us, the lesser moon swung clear of the overhanging roofs, and lit up the scene with all the brilliancy of her wondrous light. My mother shrank further back into the friendly shadows, and from her hiding-place saw that the expedition was not that of my father, but the returning caravan bearing the young Tharks. Instantly her plan was formed, and as a great chariot swung close to our hiding-place, she slipped stealthily in upon the trailing tailboard, crouching low in the shadow of the high side, straining me to her bosom in a frenzy of love. She knew, what I did not, that never again after that night would she hold me to her breast, nor was it likely we would ever look upon each other's face again. In the confusion of the plaza, she mixed me with the other children, 
whose guardians during the journey were now free to relinquish their responsibility. We were herded together into a great room, fed by women who had not accompanied the expedition, and the next day we were parceled out among the retinues of the chieftains. I never saw my mother after that night. She was imprisoned by Talhegis, and every effort, including the most horrible and shameful torture, was brought to bear upon her to wring from her lips the name of my father. But she remained steadfast and loyal, dying at last amidst the laughter of Talhegis and his chieftains during some awful torture she was undergoing. I learned afterwards that she told them that she had killed me to save me from a like fate at their hands, and that she had thrown my body to the white apes. Sarkoja alone disbelieved her, and I feel to this day that she suspects my true origin, but does not dare expose me, at the present at all events, because she also guesses, I am sure, the identity of my father. When he returned from his expedition, and learned the story of my mother's fate, I was present, as Talhegis told him. But never by the quiver of a muscle did he betray the slightest emotion. Only he did not laugh, as Talhegis gleefully described her death struggles. From that moment on he was the cruelest of the cruel, and I am awaiting the day when he shall win the goal of his ambition, and feel the carcass of Talhegis beneath his foot. For I am as sure that he but waits the opportunity to wreak a terrible vengeance, and that his great love is as strong in his breast as when it first transfigured him forty years ago, as I am that we sit here upon the edge of a world-old ocean while sensible people sleep, John Carter. And your father, Sola, is he with us now? I asked. Yes, she replied, but he does not know me for what I am, nor does he know who betrayed my mother to Talhegis. I alone know my father's name and only I and Talhegis and Sarkoja know that it is she who carried the tale that brought death and torture upon her he loved. We sat silent for a few moments, she wrapped in the gloomy thoughts of her terrible past, and I in pity for the poor creatures whom the heartless, senseless customs of their race had doomed to loveless lives of cruelty and of hate. Presently she spoke. John Carter... If ever a real man walked the cold, dead bosom of Barsoom, if ever a real man walked the cold, dead bosom of Barsoom, you are one. I know that I can trust you. And because the knowledge may some day help you, or him, or Dejah Thoris, or myself, I am going to tell you the name of my father, nor place any restrictions or conditions upon your tongue. When the time comes, speak the truth if it seems best to you. I trust you, because I know that you are not cursed with the terrible trait of absolute and unswerving truthfulness, that you could lie like one of your own Virginia gentlemen, if a lie would save others from sorrow or suffering. My father's name is Tars Tarkas. End of chapter 15《of a Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 16. We Plan Escape. The remainder of our journey to Thark was uneventful. We were twenty days upon the road, crossing two sea bottoms, 
and passing through or around a number of ruined cities, mostly smaller than Korad. Twice, twice we crossed the famous Martian waterways, or canals, so called by our earthly astronomers. When we approached these points, a warrior would be sent far ahead with a powerful field glass, and if no great body of red Martian troops was in sight, we would advance as close as possible without chance of being seen, and then camp until dark, when we would slowly approach the cultivated tract, and, locating one of the numerous broad highways which cross these areas at regular intervals, creep silently and stealthily across to the arid lands upon the other side. It required five hours to make one of these crossings without a single halt, and the other consumed the entire night, so that we were just leaving the confines of the high-walled fields when the sun broke out upon us. Crossing in the darkness as we did, I was unable to see but little, except as the nearer moon, in her wild and ceaseless hurtling through the Barsoomian heavens, lit up little patches of the landscape from time to time, disclosing walled fields and low rambling buildings, presenting much the appearance of earthly farms. There were many trees, methodically arranged, and some of them were of enormous height. There were animals in some of the enclosures, and they announced their presence by terrified squealings and snortings as they scented our queer wild beasts and wilder human beings. Only once did I perceive a human being, and that was at the intersection of our crossroad with the wide white turnpike which cuts each cultivated district longitudinally at its exact centre. The fellow must have been sleeping beside the road, for, as I came abreast of him, he raised upon one elbow, and after a single glance at the approaching caravan, leaped shrieking to his feet and fled madly down the road, scaling a nearby wall with the agility of a scared cat. The Tharks paid him not the slightest attention. They were not out upon the warpath, and the only sign that I had that they had seen him was a quickening of the pace of the caravan as we hastened toward the bordering desert which marked our entrance into the realm of Talhajus. Not once did I have speech with Dejathoris, as she sent no word to me that I would be welcome at her chariot, and my foolish pride kept me from making any advances. I verily believe that a man's way with women is in inverse ratio to his prowess among men. The weakling and the saphead have often great ability to charm the fair sex, while the fighting man, who can face a thousand real dangers unafraid, sits hiding in the shadows like some frightened child. Just thirty days after my advent upon Barsoom, we entered the ancient city of Thark, from whose long-forgotten people this horde of green men have stolen even their name. The hordes of Thark number some thirty thousand souls, and are divided into twenty-five communities. Each community has its own Jed and lesser chieftains, but all are under the rule of Talhajus, Jeddak of Thark. Five communities make their headquarters at the city of Thark, and the balance are scattered among other deserted cities of ancient Mars throughout the district claimed by Talhajus. We made our entry into the great central plaza early in the afternoon. There were no enthusiastic friendly greetings for the returned expedition. Those who chanced to be in sight spoke the names of warriors or women with whom they came in direct contact in the formal greeting of their kind, 
but when it was discovered that they brought two captives a greater interest was aroused and dejathoris and i were the centres of inquiring groups we were soon assigned to new quarters and the balance of the day was devoted to settling ourselves to the changed conditions my home now was upon an avenue leading into the plaza from the south the main artery down which we had marched from the gates of the city i was at the far end of the square and had an entire building to myself the same grandeur of architecture which was so noticeable a characteristic of corad was in evidence here only if that were possible on a larger and richer scale my quarters would have been suitable for housing the greatest of earthly emperors but to these queer creatures nothing about a building appealed to them but its size and the enormity of its chambers the larger the building the more desirable and so talhagis occupied what must have been an enormous public building the largest in the city but entirely unfitted for residence purposes the next largest was reserved for lorquest tomel the next for the jed of a lesser rank and so on to the bottom of the list of five jeds the warriors occupied the buildings with the chieftains to whose retinues they belonged or if they preferred sought shelter among any of the thousands of untenanted buildings in their own quarter of town each community being assigned a certain section of the city the selection of building had to be made in accordance with these divisions except in so far as the jeds were concerned they all occupying edifices which fronted upon the plaza when i had finally put my house in order or rather seen that it had been done it was nearing sunset and i hastened out with the intention of locating sola and her charges as i had determined upon having speech with dejathoris and trying to impress on her the necessity of our at least patching up a truce until i could find some way of aiding her to escape i searched in vain until the upper rim of the great red sun was just disappearing behind the horizon and then i spied the ugly head of woola peering from a second-story window on the opposite side of the very street where i was quartered but nearer the plaza without waiting for a further invitation i bolted up the winding runway which led to the second floor and entering a great chamber at the front of the building was greeted by the frenzied woola who threw his great carcass upon me nearly hurling me to the floor the poor old fellow was so glad to see me that i thought he would devour me his head split from ear to ear showing his three rows of tusks in his hobgoblin smile quieting him with a word of command and a caress i looked hurriedly through the approaching gloom for a sign of dejathoris and then not seeing her i called her name there was an answering murmur from the far corner of the apartment and with a couple of quick strides i was standing beside her where she crouched among the furs and silks upon an ancient carved wooden seat as i waited she rose to her full height and looking me straight in the eye said what would dotar sojat thark of dejathoris his captive dejathoris i do not know how i have angered you it was furthest from my desire to hurt or offend you whom i had hoped to protect and comfort have have none of me if it is your will but that you must aid me in effecting your escape 
if such a thing be possible, is not my request, but my command. When you are safe once more at your father's court, you may do with me as you please, but from now on until that day I am your master, and you must obey and aid me. She looked at me long and earnestly, and I thought that she was softening toward me. I understand your words, Dotar Sojat, she replied, but you I do not understand. You are a queer mixture of child and man, of brute and noble. I only wish that I might read your heart. Look down at your feet, Dejathoris. It lies there now, where it has lain since that other night at Korad, and where it will ever lie, beating alone for you until death stills it forever. She took a little step toward me, her beautiful hands outstretched in a strange groping gesture. What do you mean, John Carter? she whispered. What are you saying to me? I am saying what I had promised myself that I would not say to you, at least until you were no longer a captive among the green men. But from your attitude toward me for the past twenty days, I had thought never to say to you. I am saying, Dejah Thoris, that I am yours, body and soul, to serve you, to fight for you, and to die for you. Only one thing I ask of you in return, and that is that you make no sign, either of condemnation or of approbation of my words, until you are safe among your own people, and that whatever sentiments you harbor toward me, they be not influenced or colored by gratitude. Whatever I may do to serve you will be prompted solely from selfish motives, since it gives me more pleasure to serve you than not. I will respect your wishes, John Carter, because I understand the motives which prompt them, and I accept your service no more willingly than I bow to your authority. Your word shall be my law. I have twice wronged you in my thoughts, and again I ask your forgiveness. Further conversation of a personal nature was prevented by the entrance of Sola, who was much agitated and wholly unlike her usual calm and possessed self. That horrible Sarkoja has been before Talhages, she cried, and from what I heard upon the plaza there is little hope for either of you. What do they say? inquired Dejathoris. That you will be thrown to the wild callots, dogs, in the great arena as soon as the hordes have assembled for the yearly games. Sola, I said, you are Thark, but you hate and loathe the customs of your people as much as we do. Will you not accompany us in one supreme effort to escape? I am sure that Dejah Thoris can offer you a home and protection among her people, and your fate can be no worse among them than it must ever be here. Yes, cried Dejah Thoris, come with us, Sola. You will be better off among the red men of Helium than you are here, and I can promise you not only a home with us, but the love and affection your nature craves, and which must always be denied you by the customs of your own race. Come with us, Sola. We might go without you, but your fate would be terrible if they thought you had connived to aid us. I know that even that fear would not tempt you to interfere in our escape, but we want you with us. We want you to come to a land of sunshine and happiness, amongst a people who know the meaning of love, of sympathy, and of gratitude. 
Say that you will, Sola. Tell me that you will. The great waterway which leads to Helium is but fifty miles to the south, murmured Sola, half to herself. A swift thoat might make it in three hours, and then to Helium it is five hundred miles, most of the way through thinly settled districts. They would know, and they would follow us. We might hide among the great trees for a time, but the chances are small indeed for escape. They would follow us to the very gates of Helium, and they would take toll of life at every step. You do not know them. Is there no other way we might reach Helium, I asked? Can you not draw me a rough map of the country we must traverse, Tejothoris? Yes, she replied, and taking a great diamond from her hair, she drew upon the marble floor the first map of Barsoomian territory I had ever seen. It was crisscrossed in every direction with long straight lines, sometimes running parallel and sometimes converging toward some great circle. The lines, she said, were waterways, the circles, cities, and one far to the northwest of us she pointed out as Helium. There were other cities closer, but she said she feared to enter many of them, as they were not all friendly toward Helium. Finally, after studying the map carefully in the moonlight which now flooded the room, I pointed out a waterway far to the north of us, which also seemed to lead to Helium. Does not this pierce your grandfather's territory, I asked? Yes, she answered, but it is two hundred miles north of us. It is one of the waterways we crossed on the trip to Thark. They would never suspect that we would try for that distant waterway, I answered, and that is why I think that it is the best route for our escape. Sola agreed with me, and it was decided that we should leave Thark this same night, just as quickly, in fact, as I could find and saddle my thoats. Sola was to ride one, and Dejothoris and I the other, each of us carrying sufficient food and drink to last us for two days, since the animals could not be urged too rapidly for so long a distance. I directed Sola to proceed with Dejothoris along one of the less frequented avenues to the southern boundary of the city, where I would overtake them with the thoats as quickly as possible. Then, leaving them to gather what foods, silks, and furs we were to need, I slipped quietly to the rear of the first floor, and entered the courtyard where our animals were moving restlessly about, as was their habit, before settling down for the night. In the shadows of the buildings, and out beneath the radiance of the Martian moons, moved the great herd of thoats and zetidars, the latter grunting their low gutturals, and the former occasionally emitting the sharp squeal which denotes the almost habitual state of rage in which these creatures passed their existence. They were quieter now, owing to the absence of man, but as they scented me they became more restless, and their hideous noise increased. It was risky business, this entering a paddock of thoats alone, and at night, first because their increasing noisiness might warn the nearby warriors that something was amiss, and also because for the slightest cause, or for no cause at all, some great bull-thoat might take it upon himself to lead a charge upon me. Having no desire to awaken their nasty tempers upon such a night as this, where so much depended upon secrecy and dispatch, I hugged the shadows of the buildings, 
ready at an instant's warning to leap into the safety of a nearby door or window. Thus I moved silently to the great gates, which opened upon the street at the back of the court, and as I neared the exit I called softly to my two animals. How I thanked the kind providence which had given me the foresight to win the love and confidence of these wild, dumb brutes! For presently, from the far side of the court, I saw two huge bulks forcing their way toward me through the surging mountains of flesh. They came quite close to me, rubbing their muzzles against my body and nosing for the bits of food it was always my practice to reward them with. Opening the gates, I ordered the two great beasts to pass out, and then, slipping quietly after them, I closed the portals behind me. I did not saddle or mount the animals there, but instead walked quietly in the shadows of the buildings toward an unfrequented avenue which led toward the point I had arranged to meet Dejathoris and Sola. With the noiselessness of disembodied spirits we moved stealthily along the deserted streets, but not until we were within sight of the plain beyond the city did I commence to breathe freely. I was sure that Sola and Dejathoris would find no difficulty in reaching our rendezvous undetected, but with my great thoughts I was not so sure for myself, as it was quite unusual for warriors to leave the city after dark. In fact, there was no place for them to go within any but a long ride. I reached the appointed meeting-place safely, but as Dejathoris and Sola were not there, I led my animals into the entrance hall of one of the large buildings. Presuming that one of the other women of the same household may have come in to speak to Sola, and so delayed their departure, I did not feel any undue apprehension until nearly an hour had passed without a sign of them, and by the time another half-hour had crawled away I was becoming filled with grave anxiety. Then there broke upon the stillness of the night the sound of an approaching party, which, from the noise, I knew could be no fugitives creeping stealthily toward liberty. Soon the party was near me, and from the black shadows of my entranceway I perceived a score of mounted warriors, who in passing dropped a dozen words that fetched my heart clean into the top of my head. He would likely have arranged to meet them just without the city, and so— I heard no more. They had passed on. But it was enough. Our plan had been discovered, and the chances for escape from now on to the fearful end would be small indeed. My one hope now was to return undetected to the quarters of Dejathoris, and learn what fate had overtaken her. But how to do it with these great monstrous thoughts upon my hands, now that the city probably was aroused by the knowledge of my escape, was a problem of no mean proportions. Suddenly an idea occurred to me, and acting on my knowledge of the construction of the buildings of these ancient Martian cities, with a hollow court within the centre of each square, I groped my way blindly through the dark chambers, calling the great thoats after me. They had difficulty in negotiating some of the doorways, but as the buildings fronting the city's principal exposures were all designed upon a magnificent scale, they were able to wriggle through without sticking fast. And thus we finally made the inner court, where I found, as I had expected, 
the usual carpet of moss-like vegetation which would prove their food and drink until i could return them to their own enclosure that they would be as quiet and contented here as elsewhere i was confident nor was there but the remotest possibility that they would be discovered as the green men had no great desire to enter these outlying buildings which were frequented by the only thing i believe which caused them the sensation of fear the great white apes of barsoom removing the saddle trappings i hid them just within the rear doorway of the building through which we had entered the court and turning the beasts loose quickly made my way across the court to the rear of the buildings upon the further side and thence to the avenue beyond waiting in the doorway of the building until i was assured that no one was approaching i hurried across to the opposite side and through the first doorway to the court beyond thus crossing through court after court with only the slight chance of detection which the necessary crossing of the avenues entailed i made my way in safety to the courtyard in the rear of dejothoris quarters here of course i found the beasts of the warriors who quartered in the adjacent buildings and the warriors themselves i might expect to meet within if i entered but fortunately for me i had another and safer method of reaching the upper story where dejothoris should be found and after first determining as nearly as possible which of the buildings she occupied for i had never observed them before from the court side i took advantage of my relatively great strength and agility and sprang upward until i grasped the sill of the second-story window which i thought to be in the rear of her apartment drawing myself inside the room i moved stealthily toward the front of the building and not until i had quite reached the doorway of her room was i made aware by voices that it was occupied i did not rush headlong in but listened without to assure myself that it was dejah thoris and that it was safe to venture within it was well indeed that i took this precaution for the conversation i heard was in the low gutturals of men and the words which finally came to me proved a most timely warning the speaker was a chieftain and he was giving orders to four of his warriors and when he returns to this chamber he was saying as he surely will when he finds she does not meet him at the city's edge you four are to spring upon him and disarm him it will require the combined strength of all of you to do it if the reports they bring back from korad are correct when you have him fast bound bear him to the vaults beneath the jeddak's quarters and chain him securely where he may be found when tall Hages wishes him allow him to speak with none nor permit any other to enter this apartment before he comes there will be no danger of the girl returning for by this time she is safe in the arms of tal Hages, and may all her ancestors have pity upon her for tal Hages will have none the great sarkoja has done a noble knight's work i go and if you fail to capture him when he comes i commend your carcasses to the cold bosom of ish End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 17 A Costly Recapture As the speaker ceased, 
he turned to leave the apartment by the door where i was standing but i needed to wait no longer i had heard enough to fill my soul with dread and stealing quietly away i returned to the courtyard by the way i had come my plan of action was formed upon the instant and crossing the square and the bordering avenue upon the opposite side i soon stood within the courtyard of talhages the brilliantly lighted apartments of the first floor told me where first to seek and advancing to the windows i peered within i soon discovered that my approach was not to be the easy thing i had hoped for the rear rooms bordering the court were filled with warriors and women i then glanced up at the stories above discovering that the third was apparently unlighted and so decided to make my entrance to the building from that point it was the work of but a moment for me to reach the windows above and soon i had drawn myself within the sheltering shadows of the unlighted third floor fortunately the room i had selected was untenanted and creeping noiselessly to the corridor beyond i discovered a light in the apartments ahead of me reaching what appeared to be a doorway i discovered that it was but an opening upon an immense inner chamber which towered from the first floor two stories below me to the dome-like roof of the building high above my head the floor of this great circular hall was thronged with chieftains warriors and women and at one end was a great raised platform upon which squatted the most hideous beast i had ever put my eyes upon he had all the cold hard cruel terrible features of the green warriors but accentuated and debased by the animal passions to which he had given himself over for many years there was not a mark of dignity or pride upon his bestial countenance while his enormous bulk spread itself out upon the platform where he squatted like some huge devil-fish his six limbs accentuating the similarity in a horrible and startling manner but the sight that froze me with apprehension was that of dejah thoris and sola standing there before him and the fiendish leer of him as he let his great protruding eyes gloat upon the lines of her beautiful figure she was speaking but i could not hear what she said nor could i make out the low grumbling of his reply she stood there erect before him her head high held and even at the distance i was from them i could read the scorn and disgust upon her face as she let her haughty glance rest without sign of fear upon him she was indeed the proud daughter of a thousand jeddaks every inch of her dear precious little body so small so frail beside the towering warriors around her but in her majesty dwarfing them into insignificance she was the mightiest figure among them and i verily believe that they felt it presently talhages made a sign that the chamber be cleared and that the prisoners be left alone before him slowly the chieftains the warriors and the women melted away into the shadows of the surrounding chambers and dejah and sola stood alone before the jeddak of the tharks one chieftain alone had hesitated before departing i saw him standing in the shadows of a mighty column his fingers nervously toying with the hilt of his great sword and his cruel eyes bent in implacable hatred upon talhages it was tars tarkas and i could read his thoughts as they were an open book for the undisguised loathing in his face he was thinking of that other woman who forty years ago had stood before this beast and could i have spoken a word into his ear at that moment 
the reign of Talhages would have been over. But finally he also strode from the room, not knowing that he left his own daughter at the mercy of the creature he most loathed. Talhages arose, and I, half fearing, half anticipating his intentions, hurried to the winding runway which led to the floors below. No one was near to intercept me, and I reached the main floor of the chamber unobserved, taking my station in the shadow of the same column that Tars Tarkas had but just deserted. As I reached the floor, Talhages was speaking. Princess of Helium, I might wring a mighty ransom from your people, would I but return you to them unharmed. But a thousand times rather would I watch that beautiful face writhe in the agony of torture. It shall be long drawn out, that I promise you. Ten days of pleasure were all too short to show the love I harbor for your race. The terrors of your death shall haunt the slumbers of the red men through all the ages to come. They will shudder in the shadows of the night, as their fathers tell them of the awful vengeance of the green men, of the power and might and hate and cruelty of Talhages. But, before the torture, you shall be mine for one short hour, and word of that too shall go forth to Tardus Moors, Jeddak of Helium, your grandfather, that he may grovel upon the ground in the agony of his sorrow. Tomorrow the torture will commence. Tonight thou art Talhages. Come. He sprang down from the platform and grasped her roughly by the arm. But scarcely had he touched her than I leaped between them. My short sword, sharp and gleaming, was in my right hand. I could have plunged it into his putrid heart before he realized that I was upon him, but as I raised my arm to strike, I thought of Tars Tarkas. And with all my rage, with all my hatred, I could not rob him of that sweet moment for which he had lived and hoped all these long weary years, and so instead I swung my good right fist full upon the point of his jaw. Without a sound he slipped to the floor as one dead. In the same deathly silence I grasped Dejah Thoris by the hand, and motioning Sola to follow, we sped noiselessly from the chamber and to the floor above. Unseen we reached a rear window, and with the straps and leather of my trappings I lowered first Sola and then Dejah Thoris to the ground below. Dropping lightly after them, I drew them rapidly around the court in the shadows of the buildings, and thus we returned over the same course I had so recently followed from the distant boundary of the city. We finally came upon my thoats in the courtyard where I had left them, and placing the trappings upon them, we hastened through the building to the avenue beyond. Mounting, Sola upon one beast, and Dejah Thoris behind me upon the other, we rode from the city of Thark through the hills to the south. Instead of circling back around the city to the northwest, and toward the nearest waterway which lay so short a distance from us, we turned to the northeast, and struck out upon the mossy waste across which for two hundred dangerous and weary miles lay another main artery leading to Helium. No word was spoken until we had left the city far behind, but I could hear the quiet sobbing of Dejah Thoris 
as she clung to me with her dear head resting against my shoulder. If we make it, my chieftain, the debt of Helium will be a mighty one, greater than she can ever pay you. And should we not make it, she continued, the debt is no less, though Helium will never know, for you have saved the last of our line from worse than death. I did not answer, but instead reached to my side and pressed the little fingers of her I loved, where they clung to me for support. And then, in unbroken silence, we sped over the yellow moonlit moss, each of us occupied with his own thoughts. For my part, I could not be other than joyful had I tried. But Dejathora's warm body pressed close to mine, and with all our unpassed danger, my heart was singing as gaily as though we were already entering the gates of Helium. Our earlier plans had been so sadly upset that we now found ourselves without food or drink, and I alone was armed. We therefore urged our beasts to a speed that must tell on them sorely before we could hope to sight the ending of the first stage of our journey. We rode all night, and all the following day, with only a few short rests. On the second night, both we and our animals were completely fagged, and so we lay down upon the moss and slept for some five or six hours, taking up the journey once more before daylight. All the following day we rode, and when, late in the afternoon, we had sighted no distant trees, the mark of the great waterways throughout all Barsoom, the terrible truth flashed upon us. We were lost. Evidently we had circled, but which way it was difficult to say, nor did it seem possible with the sun to guide us by day and the moons and stars by night. At any rate, no waterway was in sight, and the entire party was almost ready to drop from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. Far ahead of us, and a trifle to the right, we could distinguish the outlines of low mountains. These we decided to attempt to reach, in the hope that from some ridge we might discern the missing waterway. Night fell upon us before we reached our goal, and almost fainting from weariness and weakness, we lay down and slept. I was awakened early in the morning by some huge body pressing close to mine, and opening my eyes with a start, I beheld my blessed old Wula snuggling close to me. The faithful brute had followed us across that trackless waste to share our fate, whatever it might be. Putting my arms about his neck, I pressed my cheek close to his. Nor am I ashamed that I did it nor of the tears that came to my eyes as I thought of his love for me. Shortly after this, Dejah Thoris and Sola awakened, and it was decided that we push on at once in an effort to gain the hills. We had gone scarcely a mile when I noticed that my throat was commencing to stumble and stagger in a most pitiful manner, although we had not attempted to force them out of a walk since about noon of the preceding day. Suddenly he lurched wildly to one side, and pitched violently to the ground. Dejah Thoris and I were thrown clear of him, and fell upon a soft mass with scarcely a jar, but the poor beast was in a pitiable condition, not even being able to rise, although relieved of our weight. Sola told me that the coolness of the night when it fell, together with the rest, would doubtless revive him, and so I decided not to kill him, as was my first intention, as I had thought it cruel to leave him alone there to die of hunger and thirst. Relieving him of his trappings, which I flung down beside him, we left the poor fellow to his fate, 
and pushed on with the one throat as best we could. Sola and I walked, making Deja Thoris ride, much against her will. In this way we had progressed to within about a mile of the hills we were endeavouring to reach, when Deja Thoris, from her point of vantage upon the thoat, cried out that she saw a great party of mounted men filing down from a pass in the hills several miles away. Sola and I both looked in the direction she indicated, and there, plainly discernible, were several hundred mounted warriors. They seemed to be headed in a southwesterly direction, which would take them away from us. They doubtless were Thark warriors, who had been sent out to capture us, and we breathed a great sigh of relief that they were travelling in the opposite direction. Quickly lifting Deja Thoris from the thoat, I commanded the animal to lie down, and we three did the same, presenting as small an object as possible, for fear of attracting the attention of the warriors toward us. We could see them as they filed out of the pass, just for an instant, before they were lost to view behind a friendly ridge. To us, the most providential ridge, since, had they been in view for any great length of time, they scarcely could have failed to discover us. As what proved to be the last warrior came into view from the pass, he halted, and to our consternation threw his small but powerful field-glass to his eye and scanned the sea-bottom in all directions. Evidently he was a chieftain, for in certain marching formations among the green men the chieftain brings up the extreme rear of the column. As his glass swung toward us, our hearts stopped in our breasts, and I could feel the cold sweat start from every pore in my body. Presently it swung full upon us and stopped. The tension on our nerves was near the breaking point, and I doubt if any of us breathed for the few moments he held us covered by his glass. And then he lowered it, and we could see him shout a command to the warriors who had passed from our sight behind the ridge. He did not wait for them to join him, however. Instead, he wheeled his thoat and came tearing madly in our direction. There was but one slight chance that we might take quickly. Raising my strange Martian rifle to my shoulder, I sighted and touched the button which controlled the trigger. There was a sharp explosion as the missile reached its goal, and the charging chieftain pitched backward from his flying mount. Springing to my feet, I urged the thoat to rise, and directed Sola to take Deja Thoris with her upon him, and make a mighty effort to reach the hills before the green warriors were upon us. I knew that in the ravines and gullies they might find a temporary hiding place, and even though they died there of hunger and thirst, it would be better so than that they fell into the hands of the Tharks. Forcing my two revolvers upon them as a slight means of protection, and as a last resort as an escape for themselves from the horrid death which recapture would surely mean, I lifted Deja Thoris in my arms and placed her upon the thoat behind Sola, who had already mounted my command. Goodbye, my princess, I whispered. We may meet in Helium yet. I have escaped from worse plights than this, and I tried to smile as I lied. What? she cried. Are you not coming with us? How may I, Deja Thoris? Someone must hold these fellows off for a while and I can better escape them alone than could the three of us together. She sprang quickly from the thoat, and throwing her dear arms about my neck, turned to Sola, saying with quiet dignity, Fly, Sola, 
Dejathoris remains to die with the man she loves. Those words are engraved upon my heart. How gladly would I give up my life a thousand times could I only hear them once again. But I could not then give even a second to the rapture of her sweet embrace, and pressing my lips to hers for the first time, I picked her up bodily and tossed her to the seat behind Sola again, commanding the latter in peremptory tones to hold her there by force, and then, slapping the thoat upon the flank, I saw them borne away, Dejathor struggling to the last to free herself from Sola's grasp. Turning, I beheld the green warriors mounting the ridge and looking for their chieftain. In a moment they saw him, and then me. But scarcely had they discovered me than I commenced firing, lying flat upon my belly in the moss. I had an even hundred rounds in the magazine of my rifle, and another hundred in the belt at my back, and I kept up a continuous stream of fire until I saw all of the warriors who had been first to return from behind the ridge either dead or scurrying to cover. My respite was short-lived, however, for soon the entire party, numbering some thousand men, came charging into view, racing madly toward me. I fired until my rifle was empty, and they were almost upon me, and then a glance showing me that Dejathoris and Sola had disappeared among the hills, I sprang up, throwing down my useless gun, and started away in the direction opposite to that taken by Sola and her charge. If ever Martians had an exhibition of jumping, it was granted those astonished warriors on that day long years ago. But while it led them away from Dejathoris, it did not distract their attention from endeavoring to capture me. They raced wildly after me until, finally, my foot struck a projecting piece of quartz, and down I went sprawling upon the moss. As I looked up, they were upon me, and although I drew my longsword in an attempt to sell my life as dearly as possible, it was soon over. I reeled beneath their blows which fell upon me in perfect torrents. My head swam, all was black, and I went down beneath them to oblivion. End of chapter 17